This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. PBF Energy wants you to know hidden rent costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit fuelingusjobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard today. And guess where this additional billion gallons of biofuel is going to come from? It's going to come from abroad. That's not an American first energy policy. We're in this together. Labor's in this. Building trades are in this. Refiners are in this. American consumers need us to do this, too. Now across the Jacob Media Network, welcome to the Labor and Energy Show special. Exclusively presented by the PBF Energy Paulsboro Refinery and the PBF Delaware City Refinery in collaboration with the labor unions that build our communities. If you fix this RINs issue, you're looking at a reduction of 25 to 30 cents a gallon. This is the Labor and Energy Show, bringing labor leaders, national experts, and political influencers together to educate you about fancy terms like RINs and Reggie, while explaining the truth about energy independence. Welcome to the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause. And welcome in, everyone, to another edition of the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause. We thank everybody for being with us across the Jacob Media Network, J. Doc. We continue to hammer home the message. We continue to try and educate the public about what is on the front page today, energy. Just fill up your tank with gas. I know I said this last week, and then I know I said it the week before, but 14 or 20 days later, gas is still increasing. The administration's not doing anything. And as we heard from our show last week with the Boilermakers, there's a big vote coming up on July 1st in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of, lot to cover. Yeah, Joe. I mean, let's be real. Um, the, 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 the topics that we're hitting on a weekly basis are the ones that are impacting, you know, not only us on the East Coast, but across the land. The gas prices staggering. I, you know, in California, I'm hearing 8 to $10, uh, you, you know, per gallon in Philly, Right now, where you know where we're broadcasting from, five dollars for for um, you know regular. What is okay. it in Washington D.C. where we're also broadcasting? What is it in Delaware where we're also broadcasting? What is it in South Jersey where people are going to the Jersey Shore uh, on the weekends and during the weeks? Yeah, I mean, you know, a good question. You know, so you know, we're dealing with. Uh, obviously, the, the 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 cost at the pump, but we're also dealing with a ton of other topics. Uh, you know, the 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 administration at the EPA just um, you know gave out the price of the of of, of the RINs and the RFS uh, for 2021 and 22. 2021 never had an official. Uh, price because uh, of the pandemic, but now, uh, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna talk to Brendan Williams from, from PBF Energy uh, to uh, to go over that and how it's going to impact this. Like there's no tomorrow. Obviously, here in 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 uh, 
and PA were talking about, uh, you know, the Reggie uh, Regional Greenhouse, Reg, uh, Regional Greenhouse uh, Gas Initiative. I mean, you're right. Energy's on the first uh, on the front lines. We're talking uh, zero emission vehicles, which is a big part of uh, in the first two segments on today's show. So, I mean, there's, uh, you know, issues hitting us in energy, uh, fueling our homes, fueling our cars, uh, you know, fueling, um, you know, our, our communities. OK, and there's so many issues hitting us that, yes, we are going to be educating people. We're going to be talking to people. We're going to have a, a, a great guest today, David T. Stevenson, and of course, uh, Brendan Williams to address a number of these issues. And we're going to be talking, to the, uh, you know, about the issues that nobody else is talking about. It's the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause, David T. Stevenson from the Caesar Rodney Institute. He'll join us when we come back after our first commercial break. Bottom of the hour from PBF Energy, as J. Doc mentioned, Brendan Williams will join us two guests today as we go into our from our first commercial break on the labor and energy show remember pay attention did you know we'll continue to educate the public back in a moment Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. Now it's time for Did You Know? A public service announcement from the providers of this program. Did you know that natural gas with carbon capture and storage ensures a more stable and cost-effective energy supply than renewables alone? Did you know? First chartered in 1903, Steamfitters Local 420 has been constructing and installing mechanical systems throughout the Delaware Valley for over a century. United by excellence, this local is proud to have worked on projects such as the Sun Oil Refineries, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the stadiums for all our Philly teams. From helmets to hard hats, Local 420 represents the history of Philadelphia. Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, business manager. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are being supported by the members of the labor union community, including Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, Business Manager, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, and the United Steelworkers. And welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. As we broadcast to you, as promised in our opening segment today, David T. Stevenson, the director of the Center for Energy and Environmental Policy for the Caesar Rodney Institute, J-Doc, will be our guest. David will join us here in this segment. We're going to cover a lot of ground in the conversation. Yeah, we're, uh, we're talking... Uh, you know, a lot of important issues. Uh, before we start, let me just let everybody know this. Uh, Caesar Rodney Institute is a nonpartisan Delaware-based uh, public policy think tank committed to protecting individual liberties. And so having said that, I'm ecstatic uh, to bring David into the program. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well, and I'm so glad to be talking to your audience so many people don't hear the details of, of what's going on in some of these legislative and regulatory actions until it hits them hard in the head and their electric bills in their pocketbooks. And, and, you know, David, I've always, the one statement that I've always made is we as consumers read the headlines. We never understand the details of the story. And I include myself in we we get so overtaken and overwhelmed by what the headline states. Uh, part of the reason why we're doing the labor and energy show is to get into the details. 
And since I'm doing this full time, I get to read these crazy documents. So I, I mean, I, literally, I can get sometimes three thousand pages of documents, and I know how to go through them fairly quickly and find find the the key things. Where other people, it, it's just overwhelming. You can't spend that kind of time. But I have the luxury. This is my fourth career. I've already retired three times, mm-hmm. so I get to spend time doing this, and you don't have to. And and we're fortunate about that. And 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 so there's a couple major things we're going to be talking about in our first uh, segment. We're going to be talking and focusing on the zero emission vehicles, a.k.a. ZEVs, uh, which we know dovetails into some climate bill uh, that's currently moving through the Delaware legislature, which we will discuss in the second segment. So if we can, let's just, uh, you know, let's talk about uh, these zero emission uh, vehicles um, and, and the mandates that, that, that various states are instituting. My understanding of them is that they are essentially mandates um, that say automobile manufacturers can only sell 100% electric cars by as early as uh, 2030. So it's essentially a ban on the internal combustion engine. Uh, is that even realistic? Well, that's what I was going to say. David, can you walk us uh, through it first and, and how these states are able to do yeah, this? There's, yeah, there, there's a couple of things going on. There's a couple of things going on. Uh, first of all, you've got some national pushes from the Biden administration to do this. I don't know that it'll, it'll happen by 2030. It'll probably take longer than that. And they're pushing the auto manufacturers by by really coming up with tight emission standards. But at the state level, it's a different story. What what the states are doing, they, they, Delaware has no automobile manufacturing. We lost our own automobile plants uh, over a decade ago. But uh, what they're doing is they're saying the car dealers can't sell anything but zero, uh, zero emissions vehicles. Now, we need to test what does that mean? The only zero emission vehicle that's even on the horizon is electric vehicles. So what they're really talking about is electric vehicles or EVs. I'll use that term a lot uh, in our conversation. So EV, if you ban uh, ban the uh, sale of electric cars in Delaware, for example, where we're, we're centered, the sch- uh, schedule for that is that by 2026, car dealers can only sell 35% uh, or must sell 35% electric vehicles. And by 2035, they have to sell 100%. And the original plan here, you know, there was a lot of deal, big deal when President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. So a bunch of states got to it together and said, well, if the president isn't going to do it, we're going to do it at state levels. But they haven't been able to pass any regulations. So what is happening is it's simply the governor saying, we're going to do this. And frankly, the governors don't have that kind of uh, authority. So they've got to go to the legislature. And, and that's really what this uh, bill we're going to talk about in the second uh, segment is, is, is giving authority to do these things uh, from the legislature. And just for, so, and just, and David, just for clarity, just so I make sure that the audience can follow in 2026, which essentially is, four years from now, and then by 2035, 13 years from now, 
if you own one of the largest automotive franchises in the state of Delaware, you are only permitted to remain in business if you're selling electric vehicles? A percentage exactly. of them. Exactly. All of them. It, oh, by 2035. Right, right. Got it. Well, That's crazy. That's it's crazy. And, and let's face it. If I want to buy, uh, you know, if Maryland doesn't do this, if Pennsylvania doesn't do this, New Jersey doesn't do this, where are we going to go buy our cars? Not in Delaware. We're going to go across the border. Because these, these electric vehicles are amazingly more expensive. I mean, we're talking right now, if you want to buy a subcompact car, let's say you go buy a Honda Fit, it sells for 17 grand. You go buy the same size vehicle from Chevy, the Chevy Bolt, it's $31,500. And, you know, the folks talk about, oh, well, you're going to save money with an electric vehicle because you don't have to, uh, do as much maintenance, oil changes, that type of thing. And you're going to save us some money, which you will. It's a little cheaper to charge electric than, than gasoline, particularly right now. Uh, but you kind of go out and borrow more money if you're going to buy that more expensive, that $15,000 more expensive car. That means you're going to have higher interest rates on your, on your payments and a higher payment. And a lot of people just won't be able to afford it. You're also, uh, at, at, at the uh, end, of, end of the registration on the vehicles is more expensive. And then at, what, what are they worth at the end? So the only, the only company, General Motors, is the only one that's told you what the battery is going to cost when the battery well wears out. And it's $16,000 just for the battery plus labor to install it. You're looking at seventeen grand, and they're only looking at the lifespan of eight years. Now, we've all got <laughs> cell phone batteries. How long do those suckers last? You're going to have to take a loan out to get the battery. Well, exactly. Yeah. you got to take another loan. So the car is worthless. At eight years, the car is worthless. Six. Meanwhile, you know, most cars go for, you know, I, I drive mine for 200,000 miles. That's just absolutely uh, staggering. We've been doing the show um, for a long time, and this is the first time we've done shows on the cost, and we're going to get into it. The critical, the the, the mind, the critical, and the rules, and the fact that everything's overseas, slave labor, all these things, and we have sixteen thousand dollars for for the electric battery for an EV, an electric vehicle. That is staggering. It is staggering. These left wing. Plans, these environment, you know, I, I'm a, I, I'm a conservationist. I do everything I can to say, I live in a net zero house that I built myself. And, you know, I, I, I believe in being, you know, clean energy and, and having a clean environment, but these guys are nuts. They're, you know, they're going, they're going way off, off, off the rails on these things. David, and, let and me try. Vehicles, go ahead, get, finish yeah, go your ahead. thought. No, go ahead, no, finish no, your go ahead. thought. Sure. Um, I just yeah. want to, and, and I'm just trying to make sure that I, allow the audience to really understand this. I don't know how many vehicles are registered in the state of Delaware right now when we're doing this show. But if all of the vehicles are replaced, if all of the registered vehicles in the state of Delaware are replaced with electric vehicles, is the state of Delaware in a position to be able to facilitate, execute, manage, 
create charging stations and all of the stuff that would be needed for all for a hundred percent of those electric vehicles to exist? No, absolutely not. Think about this. 90% of charging happens at home overnight because it's the cheapest way to do it. Uh, Delmarva power, for example, has a lower rate if you, uh, at night if you, you, uh, charge, but you have to get a separate meter, uh, because that meter has to, uh, uh, just register the electric for the vehicle, which is cheaper than your house meter. And plus you've got to put a charging station. Well, you know, most people now that buy an electric vehicle, they're at the upper end of incomes. They've got garages. You put the, you put the charger in the garage. How much is the charger, people, David? How much is the charger? Uh, you're, you're probably looking, by the time you buy the meter and the charger, you're looking around two grand. There, there's some state subsidies, but will they last forever? I doubt it. But it's about two grand to get set up. So, you know, that's part of the cost now that you've got. Did you really save any money on electricity when you've spent two grand being able to charge it at your house instead of going to a gas station and using somebody else's investment to put the gas pump in? So, it's a, it's yeah. a, it, it, I, I just want to clarify one thing. That's, maybe I got short-term memory loss. I don't know. But did you say – I want to repeat that. Did you say four years the battery has to be changed every four years? Eight years. Eight years. It, it's 100,000 miles, eight years. Uh, what, what you're looking at is you, you basically whether it's a cell phone or a battery in your car, which, you, which is a bunch of cell phone batteries stacked together, by the way. It's okay. not just one big battery. Okay. Uh, you get about 2,500 charges. Yeah. So if you do, if you charge your car once a day, that's eight years. And that's how long the batteries are warranted for eight years or a hundred thousand miles. Okay. I mean, realistically speaking, you're going to, you know, your car is going to, you're, you're, you're going to turn, you know, if you have a lease or, you know, you're, you know, you're going to turn your car in for the most, for, you know, for the most part, um, at, at four or five years, uh, if you have a lease, obviously it's four years. Um, but you know, it's, uh, yeah, okay, and 16,000, yeah, you're right. There will be no, nobody will ever own their car uh, that long, you know, or, or longer than eight years if they have to spend 16K to, you know, to get the battery. It's, it's, about, let me ask you, by the way, just if you know the automotive industry, when, when your car is actually obsolete when you get to that point, because if you go to get rid of it, sell it, trade it with, with no battery life left or only a little bit of battery life, it's going to affect the value of the vehicle. So in, and I don't know this to be true and we can move on. I don't want to get lost in it, but the depreciation of the electric vehicle may transcend any depreciation that currently would exist on a traditional vehicle that we're normally used to purchasing. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what it sounds like to me. And, and, and having, and me too. That's, that's my assumption. I think the same thing. We're going to see this, uh, just, uh, uh, the car is going to be worthless at, at eight years. You're going to wind up scrapping it. And either way, you're going to scrap the darn battery. And right now the only place to put it is a, is a, is a dump. And, 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 and so, Tell me about these low emission cars um, that 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 eventually, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, in some states, uh, you know, they're going to adopt the low emission vehicle standards, but then jump uh, to the zero emission standard. Uh, talk about the background on that, if you would. Uh, yeah, well, the, the low, they're, they're, they, they, first of all, on the gas cars, they've got uh, tighter and tighter emissions on the gasoline cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's going to be uh, 
it's going to make it hard. It's going to make cars more and more expensive. Gasoline powered cars more and more expensive. So that's one issue. Uh, but the other is eventually you can't meet it with, with gasoline and you, you've got to go to something else. Right? You know, there's some talk about hydrogen powered cars or some crazy thing like that. But the only practical technology right now is electric vehicles. So, so that's the direction we're headed. And I think, you know, uh, given your station before we leave this electric vehicle thing, it takes a, if you don't make, um, Transmissions, engines, the same kind of uh, axles, axles and, trans- and uh, differentials that we have in the cars today. The estimate is uh, there's 150,000 jobs in the U.S. making those components, which will disappear. And what we're seeing is the battery manufacturers are locating in states that are not friendly to unions. Where most of the most of the engines and uh, transmissions are being built in states that aren't friendly to unions, and I, I see us losing just a, a whole bunch of union jobs. You know, we're talking about 150,000 potential jobs. That's uh, that, that's just wrong. Well, the, the, one of the facts also is is that the 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 minerals are being mined. Uh, you know, over in you know, overseas in, in places like the Congo, where the slave labor and child labor uh, that they're using is beyond imagination. Uh, and the administration hasn't given any guarantees, uh, nor has anyone that, uh, you know, the jobs we're going to lose. I mean, all, all the manufacturing for the batteries and, you know, for the electric cars themselves. Uh, and, and the resources needed are going to be facilitated in the United States. So, um, you know, that, that's a problem, isn't it? Hey, uh, you're exactly right. I don't. I don't have to. You know, repeat everything you just said. You just said it right on. Right on. On the spot. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, you know, you, 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 it's it's mind boggling beyond belief. Uh, what we're going to lose, and one of the other things is this: these 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 energy jobs across the board. Historic, now it's not historic, but you know, you know they've tried to talk to union leaders and union people about uh, transitioning into these other jobs. Sixteen bucks an hour. We just did a show last week on them. Uh, but, you know, these aren't union rated jobs. It's 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 a, a ridiculous concept of being able to transition into that area. And, uh, you know, without without the massive job loss and, of course, wage loss. It's the Labor and Energy Show with Jadok and Krause as we broadcast to you. David T. Stevenson from the Caesar Rodney Institute is our special guest. We'll take a short commercial break and then continue our conversation with David. Also, later on, uh, following our interview with David, Brendan Williams from PBF Energy will be along back in a moment. Okay, David, stand by. We're going to resume here, our next, our second segment here. And we will get ready to go in five, four, three, two, one. And back here on the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause, very educational conversation with David T. Stevenson from the Caesar Rodney Institute. Our final segment begins right now with David. Again, Brendan Williams coming up um, on the other side of our next break. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're learning some hard facts here, and, and we're talking about uh, electric vehicles, okay, and zero emission vehicles. Um, we're going to segue into our our, seg- uh, our second segment with, with David 
uh, David Stevenson. And, and, and so having said that, David, this week, the Delaware legislature, consi- uh, legislature uh, considered the Climate Change Solutions Act, which seeks to reduce the state CO2 emissions 90 percent by 2050. You just published a piece on the on the problems with this law. Can you kind of summarize your editorial for the listeners? Yeah, well, the, the single most important important lines in this thing basically says that we're going to set this goal. It's fifty uh, percent by twenty thirty, twenty five percent by twenty twenty five. We're going to set these goals, and the the regulatory agencies will have the authority to do anything they want to do to try to meet this. So that's the number one problem. Number two is, is setting the goals. You know, this 25% goal uh, by 2025 was set just by executive order from John, Governor John Carney in 2017 with no authority. And they've been, we've had uh, a carbon tax in Delaware on, on electric generation. We've had uh, requirements by wind and solar. We have an Energy Efficiency Act. The, Delaware's been trying for 15 years to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, and the result is 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 near zero. Uh, what we the only the only one that's had any impact is, is the carbon tax, which all it did was shift generation to other states, and that generation uh, you know is being done with other uh, with coal and natural gas as well as other sources. So we haven't reduced. It's been ineffective. And, and on the renewables, the wind and solar, we're looking at, uh, again, 15 years worth of subsidies and mandates. Last year, 2% of Delaware's electricity was generated with solar. And I recently checked out the entire PGM regional grid. Uh, Delaware belong, joins 13 other states in a regional grid to get your electricity. And that that uh, regional grid, there's other states like New Jersey, Maryland, uh, and Virginia, and uh, Pennsylvania have mandates on on wind and solar. And last year, again, after 15 years of mandates, the entire grid is only four percent wind and solar after all these years. And and the carbon taxes haven't worked at all. So we really haven't reduced carbon dioxide. So you're going to set these goals with things that don't work, uh, but it's things that uh, the environmental left thinks, oh, these are great, and like like we just talked about the EVs. And they're all really expensive things. So it, it's setting unrealistic goals. It's giving the regulators the authority to do whatever they want that would never pass. Uh, the legislature. Well, let me ask you a quick uh, question there, though. I, I, one of the things you said, I mean, are, are people aware that this bill gives uh, unelected bureaucrats free reign to decide how to achieve these reductions? I mean, let's be real. Uh, you, you know, you have individuals uh, that aren't, you know, putting the bill into play that are going to end up making the decisions. Exactly. You got a bunch of bureaucrats going to make decisions. How's that usually work for us? It doesn't. So, yeah, what, first of all, you have to think about a normal way you introduce a bill in Delaware is, is, is around January when the session begins, and then you, you, you talk about it, and then you finally have a hearing. Well, this bill was kept out of the public eye until about a week ago, and even then it was only given to certain people. 
uh, it was really just fully released uh, just four or five days ago. And now we already have the Senate hearing uh, scheduled for uh, June 8th, uh, later today as we're speaking. And uh, there's, there's going to be a hearing, but here's how the hearing works. There's going to be probably 50 people that want to make public comments. So they're going to limit limit the comments to one minute or two minutes. And they're going to make sure that it's a lot of people from the Sierra Club and other environmental groups that, that get to speak. So all the stuff we're talking about over a half hour that we won't even cover everything. Right. Uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get one minute or two minutes to try to summarize. Right. So we've, we've talked to some legislators who can ask the questions and we hope that happens. But, uh, this thing is being rammed through in the last 11 days of the legislature. Un- unbelievable. Was, unbelievable. You know, the last time we did something like this, it was the Bloom Energy boondoggle. Yeah. This was, it was exactly the same thing. We came in in the middle of June with the bill. Nobody understood it. It got passed. And then we suffered the consequences. And, and it must be like being in the twilight zone for you. OK. When you, oh, my goodness. Yes. And, and, and having said that, because we only have a couple minutes left, I want to talk a little bit about carbon capture. So you in, in your recent Inside Energy report, um, you know, you, you, you know, you there's a question. Is there any you know, is there any room for carbon capture in our existing power plants? Would you would touch on yeah, that? Please? I think there is. Okay. I think there is. So I, I'm going to give you an analogy. You go back to the 1890s, gasoline was a waste product. There was nothing to do with it. They used to pour it out of the ground to evaporate or they dump it in order. And then the internal combustion engine got invented, and all of a sudden gasoline was valuable. Well, we've got the same thing going on with carbon dioxide. Right now, you look at a flue stack at a coal plant, you got about 12% uh, carbon dioxide in that, in that air. And it's fairly concentrated. So there are have already been a number of experiments done to show that you can capture that carbon dioxide. Right now it's still a bit expensive, but uh, there is a government subsidy to help until they get the cost down. And I have been working on this for a year and a half and dealing directly with some companies that have new technology that I believe will bring this down in cost. And uh, I, I see a day when we're going to, the companies like coal and natural gas plants are going to want to capture the, the carbon dioxide because they can make money on it. And uh, we can do that. So, you know, we've got one coal plant left in Delaware. And with this carbon tax, it's been working fewer and fewer hours every, every year. And by the way, one of the effects of that is as they use lower hours, they actually emit more carbon dioxide when they do run because they have to bring the heat up. And uh, and turn on the pollution control equipment. Yeah, they can actually wind up emission emitting twice as much carbon dioxide as they would if they kept running. But uh, that coal plant, they wanted to close it. The, the company that owns it, NRG Company, decided this year they were going to close it. And then the grid manager we talked about before said, "You can't close that plant. Yeah. It's the southernmost plant on, on the entire peninsula, and we won't have voltage control." Yeah. So we run at 60 hertz per minute, uh, and, and you always have to keep the, the voltage at a certain level. You can't vary it much for it or ruin your computer, ruin your TV. If the voltage, yeah, you know, so before you, you keep this plan up. 
it just seems like there's people who don't it doesn't seem it it's happening you have extremists who really don't understand the technology making decisions dying to shoot ourselves in the foot uh and at the end of the day um you know it's a scary thought if they succeed uh, Joe Kraus. Uh, David Stevenson from the Caesar Rodney Institute joining us here on the Labor and Energy Show. An invitation is coming to you, sir, to join us for our Labor and Energy Summit, the first of four that we are putting together. Um, look forward, if you're available, to you joining us uh, on that summit. Thanks so much for your insight and for your fourth career. Uh, well done, sir. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it and look forward to speaking with you again. Absolutely. You know, covered a tip, the ice, tip of the iceberg. Right? Yeah, yeah, just uh, David, exactly. I'm sitting here looking at, at the content and, 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 and all the things we're talking about. And let me say, you know, I mean, obviously, this, you know, we look forward to having you on the Labor Summit, which is also going to be broadcast uh, up, uh, up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And at the same time, um, many more discussions because we just have touched the tip of the iceberg. All right, good stuff. David T. Stevenson, Caesar Rodney Institute, our special guest, uh, kicking us off here on the Labor and Energy Show. On the other side of the break, Brendan Williams from PBF Energy, back in a moment. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. Now it's time for Did You Know? A public service announcement from the providers of this program. Did you know experts agree that a technology called carbon capture and storage, or CCS, will be crucial to mitigating the risks of climate change? Did you know? What's a boilermaker? We're the skilled welders, riggers, and craftspeople who will help you grow your competitive edge. We step up when others step back, and we do the job right, on time, on budget, and safely. No drama, just results every time. We're the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, and everything we do begins with our bond. Let's get to work together. Visit bestintrade.com. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are presented by PBF Energy and supported by members of the labor union community, a collaborative to educate the public and change the narrative. And back here on the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. J-Doc, good conversation with David Stevenson from the Caesar Rodney Institute. As you and David mentioned when our segment concluded um, before going into the commercial break, you just scratched the surface the or, the tip tip, the or the tip of the iceberg. So I'm sure you'll connect with David and bring him back into uh, a future show, the Labor and Energy Show. And, and I would love to have him be part of one of our Labor and Energy Summits um, to, to, to be able to change the narrative. Absolutely. And, and, and no question about it. Very inf- informative, great information. Lots to talk about. We will have David back on. Right now, we're ecstatic to bring in Brendan Williams, head of the government relations at, at, at PB. BF Energy, who also uh, co-produces the show and does a fantastic job. And uh, Brendan, if you would, okay, and we're going to get right into this, um, you know, a lot going on with the RFS, man, and now that the administration has released a final rule, discuss the implications of the RFS and, and in a sense, in a lot of ways, how it completely hosed everyone. Yeah, it was a really uh, disappointing decision on Friday. Uh, you guys have obviously cover the topic extensively on the show. And we've talked a lot about how the high cost of the credits you need to comply with the RFS called RINs 
uh, really, you know, kind of a, a, a crushing financial burden on the refining, independent refiners specifically, uh, the refineries uh, are large as well. Uh, and it's really disappointing. I think there was a lot of hope that particularly what, given the pain consumers are seeing at the pump and all the attention that's been brought to the, brought to the issue, certainly got a lot of significant bipartisan support for trying to reform the RFS or at least make minor tweaks that bring the price of these credits down. Unfortunately, for reasons that really escaped us, the administration went the other direction on Friday. The EPA released the final RFS standard that was similar to what was proposed. And what was proposed essentially mandates more ethanol than you can actually physically use in the fuel supply given engine and infrastructure constraints. And so when you do that, the only way you can show compliance is by these credits that are detached for when ethanol is blended into gasoline right before it gets to your gas station. And supply and demand, when you mandate more than you can use, market says the credits are going to be scarce and they're not going to be there, and the folks that can control them can drive them up. So, unfortunately, we continue to see RINs at astronomical prices. You know, these things cost $0.10 cents in January of 2020. Right before the rule came out, they were about $1.35, and they went up to around $1.70 since the rule came out. So, for an independent refiner, we're spending more on RINs than, than we are to operate six refineries across the country. It's the highest cost other than purchasing crude oil, uh, you know, it's higher than payroll, higher than all their costs combined energy to run the facility. Uh, and so the implications of the Friday rule is that we, it's looking like these costs are certainly going to be locked in for the rest of the year uh, and potentially beyond. And in addition to what the cost is lumping on the refining sector, it's, there's been significant analysis that showed over the past year it's adding anywhere from 20 to 30 cents a gallon to what consumers are paying at the pump. And so uh, certainly a disappointing decision, uh, particularly given the fact that the debate right now is all centered around refining capacity and how much refining capacity we've lost in the U.S. over the last couple of years. Brendan, how long does that latest decision last? Is it an annual? Is it how long? How does it work? Yeah, EPA is tasked with setting the standard every year. They The law was written so they have these certain volumes of biofuels that are mandated. There's a bunch of different categories. And when the law was written, Congress hoped that the numbers, the volumes mandated in the law would be a pretty good guide for EPA. The problem is one of the biofuels they mandated, it's called cellulosic ethanol, it was never developed. Uh, and there's a trigger in the law that says if cellulosic isn't produced in concert with what was mandated, then EPA has to make adjustments. And since cellulosic never came into being, uh, EPA basically has to go through this process every year of setting the standard and determining how much of different types of biofuel it wants to mandate. And, and Brendan, let me jump in here for a second. Uh, I got a real, real complicated question. Why? Why in the world would the administration do this? Number one, understanding the facts that you talked about. And number two, uh, you know, who who gets injured by, you know, who gets beat up by this? Uh, along with the, the, the independent refiners, um, it impacts the people. Talk about it. Yeah, I mean, independent refiners and consumers are the big losers. As I was just saying, 
was only a couple of weeks ago, Wells Fargo Equity Research released a piece where they highlighted they thought rents were at in 20 cents a gallon. You've had independent think tanks testify before the Senate that the number's closer to 30 cents a gallon. So this seems to be the range everybody is highlighting, and especially at a time now when I was just driving down the street and it's $5 and five cents a gallon right down the road from my house. People are seeing that all over the country. And it is, you know, we don't know why we don't know why uh, this was of all the things that the administration could do. This is certainly one tool in the toolbox that they could have used uh, and probably had the most significant impact. There's a lot of things outside of their control. They obviously can't control what Russia does. They can't control a lot of what goes on in the rest of the world. But this was certainly a tool in their control that, not only could have reduced consumer costs, but also could have removed a threat to domestic independent refiners. And, and right now, you have a lot of folks. Yeah, I, I, I want to jump. Go ahead, in. Dude, Doc. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I want to jump in. This is very disappointing. Uh, you know, we do talk about labor and energy. This is not a political issue or a union issue. Like uh, it's a human issue. But having said that. Okay, Um, anybody who votes Democrat, it's very disappointing. Why? Because look at the prices. Okay, look at the you would think that because, you know, the Democratic administration making the decision, everybody we're going to lose the White House. We're going to lose the White House next time around. Why? Because this energy issue and and the situation at the pumps, uh, you know, I'm being sarcastic when I say it, but don't worry about it because the next administration is going to be Republican and they're going to switch it back. Well, listen, take political out of it. I don't understand how a a, a small minority of radical environmentalists from the left can, can control the narrative to the point where something like this is passed and sanctioned by this administration or, or whatever administration. I just don't, I just don't understand that. Brendan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's been always one of the challenges with this issue. Interestingly enough, it's actually one of the few issues that's not political. It's more regional. There are a lot of folks in the Midwest that think this still drives demand for ethanol uh, but we've seen over the last several years, no matter what level they mandate or what the credit price is, we use the same amount of ethanol regardless. So when they set an unachievable level, all it does is raise prices for refiners and consumers. And you do have a lot of people making money on these credits, too. And they try and make arguments about even the farmers and arguments that appeal to rural communities, even though it really doesn't impact them. A lot of folks are pointing to the fact that right now, refining margins are strong. And so folks are like, oh, well, they're doing fine. But if you look at it in just a snapshot in time, that ignores the fact that people were losing literally billions of dollars over the last two years and had to shut down refining capacity and take extreme measures just to survive. And all those companies still have all that debt on their books. And now they're looking at a billion dollar rent bill on top of it. You know, maybe you might look at the current situation and say, oh, refiners are good now, but you know, six months ago, folks weren't, and we don't know what the world is going to be like six months from now. It also sends a really disconcerting signal over the long term. One of the issues we're talking about now, why prices are where they are, is because we've lost over a million barrels a day of refining capacity in the last two years in this country. We've probably lost somewhere between three and four million barrels a day globally. And demand is starting to get back to where it was pre-pandemic, and the refining capacity is not there. Well, one of the reasons the refining capacity is not there, about 40% of the refining capacity that was closed in the United States, the companies that initiated those closures, a good chunk of them said, one of the reasons we're doing this is because 
we can't run the refinery and comply with the federal renewable fuel standard. So they've shut some facilities down. They're converting them to biorefineries to make renewable diesel, which is a different type of fuel you can use to comply. And it's good that they're still going to be used for something, but the problem is when you convert a refinery to a renewable diesel plant, instead of just adding a renewable diesel plant, when you convert it, you're producing 70% less fuel with only 10% of the workers. So there's still a massive fuel volume gap that needs to be made up and job loss. And right now, that volume gap isn't there. And that's a big driver of what is impacting consumers at the pump right now. Brendan Williams from PBF Energy joining J. Doc and Krause here on the Labor and Energy Show. We'll take a commercial break. Back in a moment. PBF Energy wants you to know hidden RIN costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit FuelingUSJobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard today. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are being supported by the members of the labor union community, including Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell Business Manager, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, and the United Steelworkers. And back here on the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause, visiting with our special guest today, Brendan Williams from PBF Energy. Fascinating, J-Doc, to Try and understand how the wheels of uh, of, of reality. Well, fa- fascinating, but also confusing. No, I'm, I'm saying the wheels of reality that determine our lives, how those decisions are made. It's just so hard to to comprehend. Uh, Brendan, before we jump on to the next topic, uh, how can listeners uh, actually voice their opinions on this and impact the issues? And by the way. Where can they learn a little bit more uh, on, on the RFS and these issues? Sure. I, I go to fuelingusjobs.com. It's a coalition website. It's coalition of independent refiners and union workers. A lot of information on the site about how the RFS impacts consumers, how it impacts refinery workers, how it impacts refinery businesses. It's a font of information. highly encourage people to check it out. Oh, and I'm- in terms of what they can do. You know, call your local Congress and call your senator. The sad reality is EPA just finished this standard, uh, and in, by, the, by September, they have to propose one for next year. Uh, and we don't even know what, given what they did now, next year's standard is going to look like. So, unfortunately, it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, and it's a perfect opportunity to start weighing in early, early and often, to let folks know that, EPA is actually going to have to set next year's standard a couple of months from now, and they really need to fix what they did with this year's standard. And does that that September deadline or September time frame, is that influenced or impacted by people in political office? Well, the time frame itself was actually set by that court order. There was a biofuel group that sued EPA and said, hey, you guys keep you're keep being late on getting out these standards. We want you to definitively tell us in a court document when it's going to be out. And so they signed this agreement that a judge signed off on. So the, the time frame is pretty set in stone. But the EPA is going to start working on what's in the rule they're going to propose then now. And so it's a perfect time to start weighing in with elected officials and let them know they got to 
right or wrong here in relation to this year's standard when they look at next year. So, Brendan, um, we're going to close up on this topic, and you and I talked about it uh, yesterday, actually. Talk about the global refining capacity reductions and, and how they're impacting current supply and demand issues. Yeah, and it's a great follow-up to what we were just talking about, and I teed it up just a couple minutes ago, is in the U.S. alone, we've lost 1.2 million barrels a day of refining capacity. It's about a third of all global refining capacity reduction. And the reason uh, was there were several factors related to the closures, recent closures, but COVID certainly expedited the closure of a handful of refineries. People stopped driving, people stopped flying, trucks were still moving around, but diesel's only a third, actually less, of what you make out of a barrel of oil. So it put a lot of refiners in significant financial strain, and they had to take extreme measures, close refineries, sell assets, uh, just to hang on. Now you have the Russia situation and the sanctions on Russia, which I think everybody supports. They have actually had an adverse impact on the Russian refining sector, and a lot of those Russian fuels supply to Europe. So it's like squeezing a balloon. And when you see a global reduction in refining capacity of about 3 million barrels a day, which is what we've seen uh, possibly up to four. We don't really know a lot of what Russian refining capacity looks like right now. And demand gets back to where it was before the pandemic. Well, when demand is high, but the refining capacity isn't there, you get what we're seeing today. And, and while COVID was responsible for some of it, as I mentioned not too long ago, this program that we were just talking about, the RFS, was a reason for at least 40% of the U.S. closures shutting down petroleum refineries and turning into renewable diesel refineries that make 70% less fuel with 10% of the workforce. Policy should really be looking at how we can be additive. How can we keep the refineries we have now for security, economic, jobs purposes, while also being able to diversify an alternative energy, not necessarily choosing between one or the other. That's what a lot of policy signals are forcing companies to do right now. Chevron CEO Mike Wirth was asked about refining capacity just last week. And he, he noted there hasn't been a refinery built in this country in the 1970s. But most importantly, what he's seen is a quotum. He said, but what we've seen over the last two years are shutdowns. We've seen refineries closed. We've seen units come down. We've seen refineries being repurposed to become biorefineries. And we live in a world where the policy, the stated policy of the U.S. government is to reduce demand for products that refiners produce. Uh, and there's a, a panoply of, of, policies pointing to this. You guys were just talking about electric vehicle mandates to look to get rid of the internal combustion engine, which are last guess. Uh, there are moves to change federal fuel economy standards, which I think everybody supports if they're actual fuel economy improvements, uh, but they're trying to morph those into de facto electric vehicle requirements. We've talked about the RFS. All these things mount up. And, and you know, worth went on to say, quote, at every level of the system, the policy of our government is to reduce demand. So it's very hard in a business where investments investments have a payout period of a decade or more. And the stated policy of government is for, for a long time has been to reduce demand for products. How are you going to go to your board? How are you going to go to your shareholders and say, 
we're going to spend billions of dollars on new capacity in a market that is, you know, the policy is taking you in another direction. Yeah, and what's, so what's, it's, what's, it's what's something we really need to think about in this country. Yeah, and what's frustrating is they're shutting down one source. They're doing everything they can without having clarity and, and, and a, 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 a finite knowledge of how we're going to replace it. And we're doing it in, in such a, a short period of time where they're trying to do it in such a short period of time. You know, e- even lay people like myself can sit there and go, this is just not possible. It's like, and we talked about the Twilight Zone when we, you know, in, in our previous, this, uh, with David Stevenson in, in our previous two segments. I mean, this is the, the clear definition of it, where, where we're doing everything we can to shoot ourselves in the foot without having clarity and, and, and a finite situation with what we're going to replace it with. Talk about the sentiment. At at um, you know at at the and an independent uh, refinery right now, and what the what the future looks like. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the future is very uncertain. You know, at this point in time, uh, refiners are actually doing well. The second quarter will look well, but it's a small snapshot in time. As I mentioned, it doesn't negate the billions of dollars a lot of companies across the board racked up over the last couple of years. And as Mike Worth said. If the stated policy of the U.S. government is just to get rid of one source of energy without a good plan to transition to another or add another, you're going to, you know, the fear is you get more of what you see today. I mean, you guys have seen on the East Coast, we have 70% less refining capacity than we did in 2010. And J-Doc, you said a couple of shows ago, but we're still using the same fuel. We're just importing more of it right. from abroad or relying more on the Gulf Coast. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and I, you know, I I uh, I was uh, I think I was it was like six o'clock in the morning, and I was watching, I was uh, switching channels on the TV, and I saw one uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Coonan, uh, who we're going to have on a broadcast talking about, you know, the United States. I think we use like thirteen percent of the world's energy. And yet we're shutting ourselves down like we're like if we shut ourselves down, make our own decisions. And of course, they got the, you know, the, the energy accord and all those things. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there's a large portion of the world that are, are not going to follow our lead. And so we have, right. you know, it's 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 actually, you know, we're, we're going to shut ourselves down, become dependent on you. Like we just like you just mentioned, Brendan, uh, the, the ports who are going to be obviously importing our fuel. And at the end of the day, we don't see i don't see the environmentalists uh, you know picketing the port okay all we're doing is shutting ourselves down we have some smart people with some great uh, corporations that are willing to jump on board here and 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 develop oper- you know ways for us to be able to maintain our emissions and our carbon and all those situations and we're not doing it we're focusing on shutting ourselves completely down like like what you said brendan without a plan without a finite plan could you imagine what's going to happen if we shut ourselves down without knowing the you know the end game where we're going to be we're going to be at the mercy of countries we may be at, at war with yeah, and you know, you you mentioned the points, and that's a, a really good, really puts a really good bow around this whole thing. Look at California; they have multiple layers of climate regulations. <laughs> if they really focused on one and maybe doing it in a smart way, you probably could spur more innovation of making alternative fuels as cost effective as the fuels we need today without shutting down the fuels we need today. But unfortunately, you know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, yeah. expecting a different result. And that's what we've seen in a lot of California policy. They just focus on punishing traditional energy uh, and hoping that alternatives will come in and spur its place rather than 
trying to figure out how we can have a diverse competitive energy sector that enables the fuels we use today to keep being produced in the most clean, cost-effective manner possible while developing alternatives that can become as cost-effective as what we're using today. And you mentioned the ports. California is another example. A lot of refineries in California used to run about 90% California crew. They could get all the crew they needed from the state itself. But the state has done everything in its power to shut down its own crude supply. And now a lot of those refiners, some of them aren't running 90%. They're only running 6%. If you stand on Long Beach and look out into the ocean, the ships queued up aren't container ships. They're crude ships. And instead of California crude, it's got to come from pick a country. Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Ecuador, Colombia, take your pick. And you're, you're talking about the same California that's, that the gas prices are between 8 and 10 bucks, right? Is that the one? I'm just trying right. to think, yeah. I'm, and I'm, even before this year, they've always been more than a dollar. If we were giving fuel away for free, consumers would still pay over a dollar for it because of the cost of all the different layers of regulations and taxes they have. Unbelievable. The labor, and, <clears throat> the labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause and Brendan Williams from PBF Energy. Brendan, great stuff today. Great convo uh, with J-Doc. We appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, being part of the Labor and Energy Show. That's going to do it for this edition of the Labor and Energy Show. On behalf of Brendan Williams, <clears throat> on behalf of my partner J-Doc, I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. You can help. Call your congressperson before the upcoming midterm elections and join the movement to push back on RINs. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded.